Welcome to the Lead with Excellence Show, the podcast that dives deeply into topics like scaling a business, international expansion, and talent management. Welcome to this new episode of Lead with Excellence Show. I'm so excited to have Sebastian as a guest today because we are going to deep dive into Sebastian's journey to end up at Rosa. So welcome, Sebastian, to the show. Thank you, Thomas. I'm very happy to be here. So before we dig into the details, Seb, can you give our audience a little bit of a, a background about you, where you come from and what you've done uh, before starting your first venture? Sure, with pleasure. So I like to describe my background basically on how I inevitably became uh, an entrepreneur. And where it started was simply my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, so I always grew up in a dynamic where you needed to convince clients, sell art in that particular case. Then I did a young enterprise at school. That's where it really clicked. I knew that I was going to become an entrepreneur in life. And so I studied business engineering because I thought those would be the best studies to become an entrepreneur. I started a career at McKinsey where there too, I thought it would be a very good skill set in order to become a better entrepreneur. And just after two years at McKinsey, I knew that, okay, it was time for me to move on. I wasn't a consultant. I really was an entrepreneur. Um, and that's when in 2009, I started my journey with my best friend uh, and co-founder. We basically launched three ideas, one of which turned out to be one of Brussels' big scale-up stories. Initially, Real Impact Analytics, then rebranded Reactor. Um, we call that company RIA, you know, like for the friends and aficionados. Um, and after Reactor, basically, I continued into digital health, tech entrepreneurship, first with a company called Medispring and now with my current company called Rosa. Let's, let's talk about the, the, the three IDs that you had. So, so let's, so you, you're on the fast track, if I'm not mistaken at McKinsey, uh, meaning that, that, that you grow faster than, than the average, uh, which is already way faster than, than, than most people. So you come up, you brainstorm about three IDs. Can you get us a little bit through that process and, and, and what became, okay, one of them is Ria, but the, what, what happened with the two others? So I like to talk about that period because it resonates with a lot of young entrepreneurs where you want to be an entrepreneur, but the next question is, okay, what's your idea? And it says, I don't know. Just like when our parents would say, I want to be a rock star. And do you have a song? It says, I don't have a song. You know, like, and so finding your first idea for the first time entrepreneur is actually something that's really, really complicated because most people don't have a gift or a predisposition or a passion for a given problem or a solution. And so they really need to find it. And at that time, you know, like my co-founder and I, we had basically said, well, we're in the middle of a flu epidemic. It was the H1N1 epidemic for those who remember. And we saw in France how sanitation gel, you know, like that gel to disinfect your hands was booming. It was times 20 in terms of sales. And in Belgium, we were at the beginning of that growth and we said, let's launch our own sanitation gel and distributed all across the country. That was a really great idea, very timely and a very immediate flop. And that's a blessing to have an idea that fails so fast. Why did we fail? Simply because the Germans and the French flooded the market and their sales price was below our production price. That's the definition of bankruptcy, by the way. The second idea that we, that we launched, um, was an idea in web 2.0 platforms where companies could organize 
you know, like the communication with their customers. Historically, customers had forums that was web 1.0 and then the web 2.0 was community management. And so we had developed platforms where big corporates could manage their communities. That was the right time, the right type of problem. It was a big market. The challenge was Belgium isn't a super pioneer in regard to developing interesting solutions. Um, and so they were more waiting for it to be invented elsewhere, and then they would adopt whatever would become the market standard. And so that was a zombie idea. It, there was always interest. We always had meetings. We always had, you know, like requests for offers, but no one ever made a decision to buy. That's a very bad type of idea. Um, and then fortunately in between those two other ideas, we basically contacted one of my old clients at McKinsey who basically said, guys, I really like to work with you. Why don't we continue? I have lots of data. I don't know what to do with it. Can we work together? And that's the genesis of what turned out to be one of the big tech companies in Brussels. So that's the beginning of RIA. So RIA that starts what, in 2011, 12? Um, it actually started, you know, like um, end of 2009, started to pick up in 2010. And what did RIA do? What is the problem RIA solved? So when we launched, we had no clue. I mean, when I look backwards, it's kind of you know, like ridiculous, humiliating, border, I mean, maybe funny, but we basically went up to clients and we said, well, what can we do for you? And they said, oh, look, we have data and, and they didn't have a business problem. Um, they didn't really have a huge pain, but they said, we think you're, you're acceptably smart. And so maybe you'll find something to gain. And, and so the problem that we were trying to solve was how can I capture more value out of my data? A super conceptual problem statement. And as we were going on site, playing with the data, we said, Hey, you know what? We can connect this data to geomarketing. We can tell you in which cities you're gaining market share and which cities you're losing market share, where you actually have much more potential, where you need to attack, where you need to defend. And so from a conceptual problem statement, we actually identified a very concrete business need for which we developed an MVP that was a pivot table in Excel. And we were just grouping all of the telecom data by antenna and saying for each city, here are your key performance indicators. And so that was, that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. We had a wide problem. We made it focused on a specific business need to which we designed an MVP and that we were able to sell for 20,000 euros per deployment. And when the clients would ask us, ah, oh, well, do you have a company? Do you have a company name? Do you have a business model? Do you have contracts? We were like, how would you like to work? And it says, well, you know what? We'd love to have you as consultants. We're used to paying a certain fee for a man day. So every day you work for us, we'll pay a fee. And if you're at around a thousand dollars per man day, that's okay for us because in our benchmarks, it's good. And so with hindsight, we didn't make any form of choice on creating RIA. It was literally our clients that told us, we'd like you to do this, this way, that way, this way. And we just followed their instructions. Um, and that was the beginning. And and because it worked really, really well, we were super adapted to what the clients asked for. 
They gave us more business needs. They gave us more data. They gave us more operating countries. And so we went from one African country to a second, to a third, to four, et cetera. Then we needed new team members. We started to grow the team. And so it was the typical growth cycle of a service company where we were recruiting people fresh out of university. Um, they were wild, they were smart, they were willing to go into crazy places. Um, and so the team grew from two co-founders to 10 people to 30. We even reached 80 people on this service business model. And, um, and we had just increased our expertise, increased the number of things we were doing with data. We had let go of Excel because Excel wasn't a good solution or a good platform in order to do more sophisticated things with algorithms, with predictions, with data processing. And it's when we reached around 80 people that we said to ourselves, well, do we really want to be a consulting company in data? Um, do we want to be a tech company and you know, like expand, launch our own apps, our own products? Why don't we pivot? And that's the moment when we decided to leave the service arena and enter the product arena. We rebranded the company from Real Impact Analytics to Reactor. And in this product mindset, we basically adopted you know, like value proposition design principles of identifying a given persona for which we were saying, this is your problem and the solution to your problem is this app, this big data product. Um, and that, that was a huge transformation um, that basically led the company to where it is today, a company that continued to grow on recurring licenses and basically uh, got acquired in, uh, in May uh, 2021. But that pivots. So, so, so going from a product to a service, from a service to a product, how, so the driver was, okay, growing a consulting boutique is, 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 was not really the ambition. But there must have been a few learnings there, right? Because a few things happened during that period. So the, the starting point, and that's once again, when you're the first time entrepreneur, um, you're quite naive in your way of looking at the world. And I, and I say that with a big smile with hindsight. I had no idea at the time um, how little understanding I had of the decision that I was making because the, the initial driver was, it's difficult to scale a service company. Basically up to five, six million euro revenue, that's actually quite natural. You just surf your current clients, you surf the low hanging fruit, and just with the energy of the founding team, quite naturally, you kind of increase your client base. When you reach six million, you realize two things. One, it's quite annoying to have to renew your, your revenue every year because you're a consultant. It's a project budget, it's CapEx. And so what you get one year, you need to redo the next year. There's no recurrency, you know, like, um, and so that was one issue. And the second issue was if we wanted to do times two in revenue, we needed to do times four in the pipeline. Times four in the pipeline, that's a huge effort. It's much more complicated, especially when you reach 6 million revenue. So we said, why don't we, um, because we're sure that our clients will agree, let go of the consulting, move into a product. Products are sold with recurring licenses. Um, and so what we used to have it as a one shot, we're going to get every year. And financially, it's going to be great because our company is going to be valued much, much more 
And so it's a no-brainer. Of course we should pivot. And then, you know, like we made our good old consulting plans. We said, well, to pivot from an organizational point of view, it will take six months. And from a commercial point of view, it will take one year. And we had no idea what we were talking about. The organizational pivot took us one year. And that's actually still really, really fast. What does it mean, an organizational pivot? It means before we used to have project managers, we had, you know, like, Analytics consultants, those were the people that we were invoicing a thousand you know, dollars per day. In the product company, we had, of course, developers, but we also had product designers. We had quality assurance engineers, you know, and so we basically had new profiles that we had never recruited before. So when you're in an interview process with a QA and you don't know what a QA does, how are you able to separate the good QA from the less good QA? That pivot, we managed to do in one year. And we managed to do it because we recruited very good product professionals, but just pivoting the whole organization, that's one year. On the commercial side, it didn't take one year. It took three years. And that's something we just had not anticipated, is that our clients were completely against moving from a CapEx business model to an OPEX business model. They did not want to have recurring licenses. And it wasn't a question of money. It was because OPEX affected their EBITDA margin. And in the telecom industry, your share price is pretty much a multiple on your EBITDA margin. And so they were just against us because they said, no, that affects the share price. No bloody way we're going to go into an OPEX business model. And so three years to convert clients from a one-shot revenue stream to recurring revenue stream, that costs a lot of money. And so that was the very problematic dynamic with the pivot is that it consumed a huge amount of the funds that we had raised in our series A. And so those funds were consumed into the pivot instead of being consumed into growth. And so that created a whole set of issues also. So you went through uh, yeah, a lot of changes, a lot of people that you had to let go of hiring new people and, 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 and basically also having a market against you compared to where you were. And in, in that journey, no, I was just going to say, you know, again, with hindsight, I would probably not have pivoted. You know, like with what I know today, typically what I tell younger entrepreneurs, whether they're startup at startup phase or scale up phase, and then they're, they're in the service business for the moment, I say, be careful of being tempted into just pivoting into a product company. It's actually a huge, it's a high-risk moment of bankruptcy. It's a high-risk moment of busting the company. Um, not only, How would you do it today? Not only you know, like, do you have, in all likelihood, the possibility of failing your recruitment, failing the transfer, and failing the conversion into con contracts, if I were to do it differently today, I would have left the service company continue because it was in a product market fit. It had the right profiles, answering the right needs. Um, it was cash positive, profitable, all of the virtues that you would want out of a service company. And so that could have continued to exist. And then on the side, create a new structure that you fund as a product company where the founders are product founders and where you basically say, okay, maybe there's some exchange between the service and the product company, but it needs to function by itself. It needs to have a product life cycle and 
trying to convert one to the other is actually a way to consuming um, enterprise. In that journey, you, you at the end, um, you, you left Korea um, at some point. And, and one of the things you, you learned or you told me you learned is like the difference between being a founder and a CEO. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So I, I think, you know, like obviously when you become a, a tech entrepreneur, people always tell you, oh, well, you're, you're so courageous, you know, it's, it's so hard to launch yourself. And it's actually not so much about launching. It's, it's really about, you know, like taking all of the hits, taking the hardship, asking yourself what you're willing to sacrifice. When I look backwards, for me, entrepreneurship, it's not so much about launching yourself. It's about standing back up when you fall. And a journey of an entrepreneur is filled with, you know, like, um, um, with falls. It's okay. They're called learnings. You know, like it's called survival. It's called getting over it. Um, in, let's say, my trajectory as a, a tech entrepreneur, when we finished this pivot, um, when we had all of those crises, whether it was the reorganization of the team, whether it was conflicts with our investors, um, I learned two things. Um, I learned some things around investors and I learned some things about myself. The first thing is on investors, there's for sure a huge distribution of types of investors. And there's some people who say that they're founder friendly and some people who do not. Um, in reality, it is super important for you as a founder to ask companies in which the investors have already invested in to give their perspective on whether their investors are founder friendly or not. And instead of going to the times 10 success stories, I recommend go to the founders who did times one, times one and a half and ask their experience with the investors. It's super important that you do your due deal on your investors to really understand their culture, really understand how they behave, because when things become difficult, you want partners. You want people that basically work with you to find a solution rather than people that can be tempted by conflict. So that's the first thing I learned is there's a huge variety of investors. Be careful of who you choose. The best way is to talk with their existing portfolios, especially companies that are doing okay, but not great. The second thing is I learned a lot of things about myself. Um, one of the legitimate challenges that I got from my investors was, Seb, are you a founder or are you a CEO? And it actually took time for me to understand the nuance. The founder is the person that gets super excited with the idea. With, he, he's obsessed about the problem. He wants to find a solution to the problem. He wants to convince people to adopt his solution. And so that enthusiasm, that's founder juice. It's very, very different from CEO juice, which is much more about saying, okay, what's the ambition? How are we going to structure this into targets? Is my budget aligned to deliver on these targets? How do I recruit a really top-notch management team with whom I'm going to basically have great management dynamics? We're going to cascade all of those dynamics across the entire team build a great culture. And as you launch, the founder and the CEO identity is, is entirely merged, but that's not necessarily a requirement. As you grow, you might find out that your identity is more on the founder side or more on the CEO side, or that you're a hybrid and you're able to do both, but it's okay 
to distinguish your identity from the role you need to play in the organization and what the needs of the organization is. And so probably with hindsight, I thought too much that I was a hybrid, that I needed to be both the founder and the CEO, whereas Reactor probably just needed me to play the role of a founder and allow a professional CEO to take over. Um, that ultimately was not the scenario that was followed. It was one where um, I left the organization and one of my you know, like, um, executives uh, and I, an executive that I had a great relationship with took over the responsibility of CEO. And in all of the companies that I founded afterwards, I've always made very, very clear here I'm playing both roles. And when the time is right, potentially I'll continue as a CEO or I'll continue as a founder or I'll hand over. But that was a huge learning for me. And I hope that other entrepreneurs will discover that it's possible to remain a founder and hand over the CEO responsibility without it being a big deal. Great. Thanks. Um, maybe last question for, so today you, you shift, right? So you went for reactor, you were the CEO of Rosa. Tell us a bit about that shift, right? Uh, what, what made you go into that direction? Uh, what were the steps and, and, and what's the ambition of Rosa today? So, you know, like typically when I, when I left reactor, like a lot of founders who leave their own structure, it's, it's a hard time because it's your baby. You leave your baby. It's you, you have quite a lot of emotions and then directly you're confronted with the next question, which is, well, what am I going to do next? What's going to be this great market that I want to pursue? And the reason why I'm saying market rather than idea is that as a serial entrepreneur compared to the first time entrepreneur, I realized that the determining factor of success of an entrepreneur is the choice of a market, which is a problem solution combination and the competitor set. And when I analyzed all sorts of different markets at the end of 2018, I basically realized that digital health was a super exciting space, super exciting. There was a huge amount of problem solution spaces and the competitor set is a legacy competitor set. A lot of companies that have been doing custom IT for 20 years, they're absolutely not into contemporary tech standards. They're slow, uh, their clients are unhappy with them. And so I said, this is gonna be fun. And the reason why I'm saying it's also a tremendously huge market is that you know, like IT in healthcare is a multi-billion euro market across Europe. Um, and so directly my question was, what is a good entry point? Where can I basically create a space? Where can I create a beginning of user base, a be beginning of traction, a, create, a beginning of value creation? Um, and that's where I, I launched Rosa. I said, I believe that the patient application market is going to be tremendous. Um, I'm going to um, emulate what Dr. Lieb did in France, make some different product strategy decisions for Belgium, but basically saying with a first step around allowing patients to easily find and book medical appointments, I basically invested two years of product development and traction. And we're in this high growth phase where we're basically, you know, like onboarding roughly 300 new health professionals per month. We're basically doubling in patient activity every quarter 
Um, and by the end of the year, I should be the second biggest uh, medical booking platform in Belgium. And we will have done that in, in roughly two years since we went, uh, went live into production. And this is the beginning of the journey where we're starting on the find and book a medical professional. And then over the course of 2023-24, we're going to be adding other patient features so that ultimately you can manage your entire health from your smartphone and hopefully through an app like Rosa. Great. Maybe last one, what did you take from Ria to Rosa and the learnings? I mean, are there a few things that are very similar? One is, is, is almost a B2C kind of application. It's a B2B2C kind of application. The other one was really a, an enterprise SaaS. Um, but any similarities, differences? So I'd say there, there are three things that I really wanted to um, maintain between both organizations. Um, I think the first one was from day one, a founder needs to create an exceptional culture. You want people to know how they need to behave within an organization, which behavior is desirable and less desirable. So culture is a day one efforts for, for me. Typically when reactor went through huge crises, when we needed to let go people, um, when we really had you know, like cash issues, it was thanks to the culture that people stayed committed to the organization. And so that's certainly something that I, I repeated with Rosa. The second is I learned the hard way with reactor, how important value propositions are. If you have a conceptual value prop, or if you are a dual or multi-product value prop, you will always lose to the mono value prop, the mono product company. And so as fast as possible, try and find this value proposition, make it super self-explanatory so that clients know how to find you, know which words to use, know how to describe why you are important to all of their stakeholders. Um, that's a second huge learning that I carried from Reactor to Rosa. And then the last one is it's not about being a super CEO, never. It's about having an exceptional management team. And so from day one, you want to find the stage appropriate, complementary, whether they're co-founders or whether they're executive team members that basically collectively really um, accelerate the, the emergence and the growth of your structure. Um, and that was maybe the best feedback that I received from my old management team at Reactor. They said, Seb, you tried to be the super CEO. You tried to be competent in all of our domains. We feel a bit left aside. When you have strategic thinking, you do it by yourself. We really would like you to change, improve the management dynamics, open up your strategic thinking. Let's all dig into it together. And that was the best feedback I ever received as a founder CEO, because then I reapplied those learnings in the next structures. And, and then you realize how very virtuous management team dynamics, that's the best asset you can have to make an organization move very, very fast. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for these insights. Um, so thanks, Sam, for uh, joining this. And um, I hopefully will see you all in a next episode. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode of the Lead with Excellence show. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. 
and you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.